Josh said, my name is Andrew, and uh, I have the privilege to lead us in our time together in the Word tonight. Um, we will be looking at the third letter in that series that Josh was talking about. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 2. And if not, um, they will be on the, the screen, so no worries there. Revelation chapter 2. We're going to go ahead and read it, starting in verse 12, so you can follow along with me. It says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual morality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, And I will give him a white stone, and with a new name written on it, on the stone that no one knows except for the one who receives it. Piece of cake. (laughs) We got uh, swords coming out of mouths. We got Satan. So it it seems a lot more intimidating than it is, because Revelation has this, it uses imagery and it has this language that intimidates us, but... There's so much goodness in just these five verses, and I pray that we would see what the Lord is speaking to these people and that we would apply it to our own lives. And so we've been using, the, myself, Chris, the elders, we've been using this, um, this system or formula, I guess you could call it, to organize our thoughts and our prep and, and the delivery of our sermon. And so we're gonna, I'm going to continue doing that tonight. So there's, there's six categories that we can break this letter into. And the first of that is, who is this letter written to? In verse 12, it's, it's very clear. It says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum. And in, it's super helpful for us to understand where Pergamum is, what's going on in this letter. And so, Pergamum, it was a, it was a big deal, the city. Unlike the, a lot of the other cities that are in this series, it was not a, on a trade route. It was not very commercial. They were almost exclusively political. Their, their rise to fame, I guess you could say, was that they were Rome's financial capital in Asia. So Rome begins taking over the world, and they set up shop at Pergamum. That's their Asian branch, you could say. And, and with that came a lot of things. And one of those things is the amount of idolatry that came from Rome and was present in this city. So you had 
all these idols, all these false gods. They had statues dedicated to them. They had altars. They had um, festivals and banquets. Just all of this idolatry that's running crazy in the city, as well as emperor worship. Chris mentioned this last week in the letter to Smyrna. The emperor of Rome was considered a god as well. So not only are they worshiping these false gods, they're also worshiping and offering prayers and incense and worship to the emperor as well. Okay, so much like Ashley's going to go to uh, these countries and we would consider them spiritually dark places. Pergamum fits the bill of a spiritually dark place. And not to, uh, not to one-up the other cities that we've talked about, but where in Ephesus you had the threat of false teaching. And in Smyrna you had the temptation and the threat of persecution. Pergamum, it has both. They have both false teaching and persecution. And in a minute we're going to find out that they handled one better than the other. And so that was who the letter was written to. Who it was written from is also found in verse 12. It says, the words of him who, who has the sharp two-edged sword. And so Jesus himself, like Jesus Christ, is the author of all of these letters. And so everyone who comes up here and preaches that from section, that, the short answer will be Jesus. But he, he identifies himself different in each letter, depending on what that church needs from him. And so we see that he identifies himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. And that kind of foreshadows what's going on in this letter. It's, there's a sternness, there's a seriousness about this letter that Jesus needs to be a sword for these people. Um, like, like I said, being a providence of Rome, they got many things uh, at Pergamum. And one of these things was what they called the right of the sword. And it sounds like, it is what it sounds like. They had the... Uh, permission to execute prisoners with a sword, like Game of Thrones style, um, without having to go through Rome. They had that permission. And so who they thought were prisoners were people who were not participating in these festivals, people who were not uh, worshiping these idols. And here Jesus is saying to people who are constantly under the threat of the sword, that he has a sword as well. And his sword is the ultimate, that his sword is, is I guess, bigger, but um, he has more authority. It reminded these people that they were citizens of another kingdom with a king who had a sword as well. And I'm sure that brought some comfort to these people because we're about to find out they lived in super harsh conditions. So we move from the to and the from, and then we go into the meat of the letter where Jesus evaluates the church. He'll evaluate them on what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong, and he'll offer encouragement. Uh, so in verse 13, it says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, 
who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So, if we remember in some of the introduction sermons about this, that Jesus is walking amidst the lampstands. So he knows what they're dealing with. This is first-hand knowledge. No one's reporting this to him. He knows what they're going through. And because of this idolatry, because of how spiritually dark it is, Jesus likens Pergamum to Satan's throne. He makes that association. He says, because uh, there's so much evil and so much deception that's in this city, it's like Satan lives there. It's like he set up headquarters there. He's using all of these heretics. He's using all of this idolatry to deceive and to distract his saints. And Pergamum had developed this reputation to where if you just mentioned Pergamum, if you said, I'm from Pergamum, the listener would immediately make an association about what that means and certain assumptions. And I, I tried to think what in our day has that immediate uh, association. And I thought of the band Nickelback. <laughs> Growing up, and even still today, uh, you mention the name Nickelback, and people associate certain things with that band. Mostly that they're terrible and they, they're the epitome of bad music. I'm not saying I agree with it, so if you were a diehard Nickelback fan, don't come attack me after. But you can't deny there's an association immediately with those two. And 20 times worse than that, Jesus is saying... Meg. 20 times worse than that, Jesus is saying that where they're living is where Satan is set up shop. And there's so much deception and so much distraction. And on top of that, that people are dying for their faith. It says, um, Do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you. We don't really know much about this guy outside this letter, but we know that he's a martyr, and we know that he is given the same title that Jesus gave himself in the first chapter. So you have um, Satan setting up headquarters here, all this idolatry, all this spiritual darkness. You have people dying for their faith, and in spite of all of that, Jesus commends these saints. He's saying, in spite of all of that, all the eyes that have, you have against you, you did not deny my faith. You hold fast to my name. And I'm sure that brought comfort for them. I'm sure that they were, you know, the, the king of the universe is giving you a that a boy. That, that must have excited them. But we also know that Jesus is the type of God that is not afraid to tell us the things we're doing wrong as well. And so he encourages them in 13. And then in 14, he kind, of, he kind of drops the hammer. In 14, it says, <clears throat> it says, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And so 
You don't have to turn there, but in the book of Numbers, chapter 22, this is where this reference to Balaam and Balak is. And it's exactly what it says in the text right here, that Balaam was this prophet, and that King Balak wanted him to curse Israel, and he couldn't, and so he, he told them ways to distract and to deceive Israel. And this is not the same Balaam, because this is much further on the timeline, but Jesus is labeling what these heretics, what these people are doing. He's labeling them as the same thing. And these people would know that story, and that would, that would catch their attention. They may just be going through the routine, and then he throws the name, oh, you're following Balaam, and they probably woke up. And also the Nicolaitans, that was mentioned in the letter to the Ephesian church. And because uh, they're mentioned together and because in the original language that their names are the same, there's a very good chance that these two groups are the same people. And so they are deceiving the saints at Pergamum. And these saints, some of them are falling for it, some of them are participating in this um, food, eating the food sacrificed to idols. Some of them aren't participating in that, but they fail to do anything about it. And so this is where we're going to camp for a little bit. Because at the root of what Jesus is saying in this section, he's warning us against compromise. He's warning us against compromise. So... Our idea of compromise is a a positive one. You know, when you go out to eat with your friends after church, y'all compromise on what you want to eat. That's that's seen as good. Or with your wife or your husband or your kids, compromise is seen as a good thing. But there's a difference between compromising with that and compromising with what Jesus has called us to. It's different when it's Jesus who purchased us who died for us, who called us to obedience, there's no compromise there. And so, as I was praying about this, as I was praying about direction and and for you to receive this and asking the Lord, how does this, this letter that was written so long ago, how does it apply to us? He put three things on my heart. And these three things are things that can lead to compromise. And here are some disclaimers about them. They're general, and they're general on purpose. Because um, I think that if one of, or two or three of them, if they resonate with you, I think that's something that will be more specific between you and the Lord. And the second thing is, is there's probably a lot more than three, but I just picked three. Okay, so these are three things that we find in this text that can lead to compromise. The first one would be justification of sin. Justification of sin. For the people at Pergamum who were being deceived into eating this food, sacrificed to idols, and uh, participating in uh, sexual morality, there are times when they justified their sin. The people who ate the food, one of the commentaries I read said that they knew that their gods were false, that they were um, participating in this festival for. They knew that they were false, but they thought, what is food to my, it's just food for my body. It's not, 
it has no bearing on my spirituality, so it's not a big deal if I participate in this. They justified their sin. And we can do the same thing at times, myself included. We can justify our sin, and that can lead to compromise. Any rational, any, when you talk yourself into it, you not make it seem as bad as it is, that can lead to compromise. Compromise is the obedience that Jesus calls us to, and it takes away from the abundant life that he died to give us. So that's the first one, justification of sin. The second one would be desire for comfort above obedience. Desire for comfort above obedience. Like I've said, the, the climate that these people are living in, it's hostile, and it's super hostile towards Christians. And so for someone to believe in Jesus, they could potentially lose their family. They could be... Uh, ostracized by, commu- by the community. They could lose their jobs. They could die. And so to combat that, to avoid that, to seek comfort, led them to participate in these things, the things that Jesus forbade them to participate in. The people who weren't doing these things, the church, people of the church who weren't, but who didn't do anything about it, Maybe they just wanted to avoid an awkward conversation with that person. Hey, you're eating food sacrificed to an idol. God said, don't do that. That would be a weird conversation maybe for them. So that's why they perhaps desired comfort above obedience. And that led to compromise. And the third one is, is real short. And it's something that, that Chris talked about a lot last week. It's just apathy apathy. That these Christians who are in such dire circumstances, they probably just wanted to throw their hands up. They were probably exhausted from fighting how much it cost them to follow Jesus. The people who failed to discipline or to run these heretics out of town, maybe they just said, Jesus will take care of it. That's their problem. I'm doing, I'm doing me. The justification of sin, the desire for comfort above obedience, and apathy, I think are three things that I've noticed in my life and the people that I've walked closely with that can lead to that compromise against the abundant life that Jesus died to give us. And so what do we do with that? In verse 16, Jesus says very, very, very plainly, says, therefore repent. We'll stop there. There's no magic formula. There's no list. It's repent. It's literally change your thinking. It's shift your focus from the compromise or the idol that you're focusing on or whatever it is. Shift your focus from that to Jesus, the God who created you, the Lord who loves you, the Savior who died for you, You shift your focus. You repent of that. And then you abide. You move forward. There's no lag period for you to fix everything before you do that. It's just repent. It's that easy. And then, after that, Jesus, he issues a warning that is kind of heavy when we read it. 
at the second part of verse 16, it says, it says, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So again, I think it's very important to remember who wrote this letter. That Jesus, he's, he's fair and he's holy. And that he's, I think it's super important for us to remember that he's not, that his war will be against them, not the church. It's against the heretics that threaten his people. He's not um, hostile. He's not reactive. It's not, his aim is not revenge. It's purification and protection of his church and his people. And so we repent and we do it with, with confidence knowing who he is. And then he makes us a promise. In 17, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. To the one who conquers, I will give hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. If you've been around church or read any of the Old Testament, manna, you probably remember that as the food that God gave the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert, I mean in the wilderness. The white stones is a little trickier because uh, there's not much of that outside of this text. And there's not a, a huge consensus about what this means. There's about seven or eight things that I saw in my study. But I'm going to talk about the one that was the most consistent among those, and I think that fits in with the theme of Revelation the best. In ancient times, um, a white stone was used as an invitation to a banquet. So much like uh, a birthday or a graduation or a wedding, how we send out uh, invitations, they would do it with a stone. And the new name would be the name that the new identity that Jesus gave you. And so when you look at it compared to the people that he's writing to, it's these people who are under the threat constantly to eat a meal dedicated to a false god and to have fellowship with a false god. And God says, I, the true God, will give you a meal that will satisfy you and we will have fellowship forever. When you weigh those two, it doesn't make sense that you would choose the first. He's saying you're, you're under the threat of constantly being uh, pressured to do these festivals and these banquets of these false gods. And he's saying, I'll invite you to my banquet on the new earth. And so Jesus makes these same promises to us as well. That when we conquer, we overcome, we don't compromise. That we have fellowship with him and he fully satisfies. And that we will enjoy a banquet with him for eternity on the new earth. And so I think as we close, I think there's two camps that you can fall in. 
after hearing all of this. First camp would be, I think that if you hear me say the word compromise, you immediately knew an area of your life where this has been a struggle. That Jesus has been pushing on this area of your life and saying, you're either compromising here or there's a threat to compromise here. And what you do with that is what the text says. You repent. You change your thinking. You abide. You focus on Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us. And the second camp is the opposite of that, is that you've been racking your brains out the whole time trying to think, where is this applicable in my life? Where do I have compromise? Where am I compromising the obedience that Jesus has called me to that's stopping me from living the abundant life that he died to give me? Your to-do list is twice as long, uh, which is good because there's only two things. The first thing is you ask him. You ask him where this is applicable. You ask him where there's compromise at. And he'll tell you because he wants to refine us. He wants to show us these things. And then you go back to step one of camp one. You repent. When when we focus on who Jesus is, and what he's done, and what he's promised us, and Jesus does not go back on his promises, when we keep all that in view, compromise just seems ridiculous. It just doesn't make sense. And so the band can come on up. Uh, I'm going to pray us out in a second, and we're going to respond like we usually do in song. But I think... I think it would be good for us just to spend a couple of seconds with Jesus. Just spend a little bit seeing where this fits in, where there's compromise, where there's a threat to compromise. And this conversation, I mean, this conversation with Jesus now does not end here. You can take this. You talk to your friends about it after you talk to Jesus. You confess to them. You repent. So you take a, take a minute with Jesus, and then I'll pray us in a minute. Jesus, we're thankful that you love us enough to tell us the truth. That when things threaten your children, you don't just stand passive. That you bring it to our attention and you lead us through it. And ultimately, it's for your glory and our good. And I'm thankful that you lived on this earth. You know how real the threat of compromise can be. But you're the only one who's ever been through it without compromising. So I pray that as we apply this to our lives, that we look where there is compromise where we are not living the abundant life that you pay the ultimate price to give us. And pray that we would find the courage and the boldness to ask you. Would you lead us in the repentance? Lord, let it all be for your glory. Amen.